Welcome to Generations of X, the podcast where we discuss the past, present, and future of all things X-Men. I am your co-host, the uncanny Dayspring. And I am the adjectiveless Flinkman. And, and Flinkman, I have been waiting all week just to discuss the books with you. I, we've kept our feels to ourselves for like six days now. I don't, how is that even possible? It's not. It, it's, it's because we had a big interview run this week and, and you are like over the moon about it. So I think you should be the one to talk about it. Yeah. If you haven't heard already, we have a special episode already out on Spotify or iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on, um, where we interview Heather McComb, a.k.a. Jubilee, and Randall Slavin, a.k.a. Refrax, from the 1996 Generation X TV movie. Uh, It's a special reunion of it, the two, where we talk all kinds of things, but you know we talk Fanola Hughes and Emma Frost, so if you haven't already, check it out. Yeah, uh, it's a great interview. I can't believe we asked Jubilee and Refrax what they would do if Doctor Strange in the MCU opened up a portal and they came through it. Like, that was so surreal. It's incredibly surreal, and I I watched the video also on YouTube if you want to watch us. Uh, I watched the video back earlier today, and like... I might be looking like a professional, but 11-year-old Mike is definitely screaming on the inside, and you can tell. You can totally tell. So it's because of that that we're keeping this episode really short. We didn't want to disrupt the Ten of Swords crossover coverage we've been doing, so we're going to dive into our books, and we're going to do our recaps, give our thoughts about it, but that's going to be it for this episode because we really want you to check out the Generation X, I was going to say Generations of X. We want you to... So I know, self-involved. So self-involved. The Generation X TV reunion. And in it, they ask us to go search for M and Buff, the actors. Yes. Uh, apparently, there are con organizers interested in having the cast, but they will only do it uh, if it's all of them. And we are missing Suzanne Davis and Amaryllis. So if anybody out there knows Suzanne or Amaryllis, please, 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 generationsofx at gmail.com. And without further ado, let's dive into the books. Yeah, uh, this week we have only two chapters of the Tennis Swords crossover. We have Excalibur and we have X-Men, adjectiveless X-Men at that. Uh, why don't you take us through Excalibur real quick? So we're going to be discussing chapter nine of the Ten of Swords crossover, which is Excalibur number 13. Our writer is Teeny Howard, and our artist is none other than R.B. Silva. All right, so we kick off with the brother Braddocks arriving at the Starlight Citadel, and we have an adorable as fuck reunion with the Braddock siblings, which includes Betsy. And Flinkman, can you guess what Jamie is wearing? He's wearing Mr. Sinister's cape. He's wearing Mr. Sinister's, Mr. Sinister's cape from the previous issue. Yes, uh, yes, the cape that he stole. I love continuity. I love when the artists are on the same page. Um, but the reunion is cut short because Captain Britain is upset at Brian because he brought the Sword of Might. And she's like, mm, take that back to Krakoa. And he's here like, uh, Betsy, we were named in Polaris's tongue prophecy. So this is a little important. 
And this is a pretty douchey scene because Brian is like, take the sword of might. And Betsy is like, no, I want to wield the starlight sword. And he's here like, but okay, give me back the amulet so I can transform to Captain Britain again. And I was just like, really dude you're you're really gonna be hashtag not my captain britain like i i just i can't with that <laughs> i mean it's not like this is even her first time wearing the costume calm down brian i know it's been 13 issues but anyway so it's okay because saturn 9 arrives in all of her glory and starts shading betsy and starts saying welcome to my castle isn't it fabulous enjoy it now because soon we're gonna have lots of people here and there's no time left to mourn the dead and they eventually find themselves at a garden dedicated to the Captain Brian Corps. And Saturnine is like, LOL, we don't even have a, a Captain Britain Corps anymore. And Betsy's like, hold up, we have Alt-World Rogue, Gambit, Jubilee. And basically Saturnine is like, no, no, they don't, they don't count. Sorry. Next. Not my caps. Not my caps. Thank you, next. So, you know, we, we jump ahead to Brian and Betsy duking it out and Winner gets the amulet. And because Brian is like, I didn't think you'd want to be Captain Britain forever. And Betsy says something that I feel was a little bit of Teeny Howard coming through. And I, and I really liked it. And like Ben, you know, I love my quotes, but the way she said it was just so beautiful. Do, do I have your permission to repeat it? You have my permission, sir. So in reference to Captain Britain, Betsy says, it's an honor, not a birthright. And I was like damn right. That's exactly why Betsy is Captain Britain. So anyways, before they can finish their duel, Saturn 9 comes in and again, shades Betsy before they can even finish the fighting. Don't sit on the roses. Don't sit on the roses. I, I still haven't figured out the accent or voice for Saturn 9. It's because I, I think of her sometimes as Emma or and then I remember she may be Courtney Ross. I don't know. So anyways, I don't have an accent for her. Um, at night, the Captain Britain court busts into Jamie's bed and they try to assassinate him. And Betsy and Brian rush to his side, but alas, the Mad King has already everything under control and kills our Captain Britain Jubilee. And Brian gets like really angry and wants to take them on. And he transforms, or for our Sailor Moon fans out there, he Henshiel into Captain Avalon. But we don't get really to see much of him as Captain Avalon because Saturn 9 shows up uh, in all of her glory nightgown and is angry as fuck and tries to take the amulet of right from Betsy, but Betsy destroys it. And Saturn 9 is like, I'm sentencing you and the other core members to prison and takes Brian back to her room mm, for a salacious evening, no doubt. But it's all fine because Betsy telepathically communicates with the other members of the Captain Britain Corps and with Jamie as well, and they escape. So back in Saturday 9's room, this is actually a really interesting scene because we find out that Amulet was just a formality from the days of yore and that she actually has a starlight sword in her possession. So her and Brian start making love and it's all a ruse because Brian is only distracting Saturn 9 so Betsy can get the sword and reclaim her rifle mantle as Captain Britain. So uh, that's where our issue ends. She and Brian go back to Krakoa and they join Cable, Storm, Wolverine, Doug, and Magic on the Corpse of Rock Slide and they prepare for the tournament. Your recap really pointed out to me how much 
happened in this issue. Thank uh, you. When I read it, I didn't feel like a whole lot of substance uh, really went down, but I, I'm going to need to reflect on this one further. I, I didn't like it the first time just because anytime a Jubilee dies, whether it's the real <laughs> or not. And can we clarify if this is or is not the real Jubilee? Yeah, I'm not clear on that either. I was reading the news Rama article and that's where also they they talked about hashtag not my captain britain i just want to give that shout out but they made it sound like and and I'm, this is going to go into my notes about about the issue but they they did specify this was an alt world jubilee okay and and i i, I assumed that was the case because i didn't see any furor online which i would assume would happen if a beloved character uh played by Heather McComb in the 1996 Generation X TV movie uh, was killed. You stole my um, notes. You stole my notes. That's what I was going to say. Oh, well, see, you do that to me all the time. How does it feel, buddy? Oh, it feels terrible. Um, But yeah, no. So I think that part of the reason why I wasn't super into this on first read is because I feel like the lead up to the Excalibur portion of Ten of Swords was very confusing. Um, a lot of it was muddled for me. And I don't think a lot of the things that needed to be clear to fully understand this issue were clear to me personally. So, so I want to, look, I, I half agree with you. Look, I haven't been a fan of Excalibur. I, I want to support Teeny Howard. I think the work she and Hickman do together is phenomenal and they balance each other out. But, uh, Bro, Excalibur is the total narc of the Dawn of X books. You have a book with Betsy, Gambit, Jubilee, Rogue, Richter, and Apocalypse, right? right. It was a book I was most excited for. And Same. the first couple of issues, I'm like, this is gibberish. I, I don't understand what's going on. I, it's not, I, I want to, and I want to be clear, it's not her writing. It's not Teeny Howard's writing. It just... It was so lost in its world building. There was a lot happening and you couldn't really see the forest for the trees at the time. You know what I mean? Like you couldn't see where it was all leading to, at least from my perspective. But, but taking this issue for what it is, just one chapter and a much larger crossover, I actually think it was stellar writing. And if Hickman is showing us a Summer's Family Dynasty, Howard is giving us a Braddock Dynasty. And... I'm sold on that. I'm yeah. 100% sold on that. I want to see other complicated families other than the Summers family. And I, I thought the writing was great. I think Saturn 9 was written very well. I, like I said, I'm going to have to go back and read this one again. I feel like I didn't quite put it together uh, as well as I could have and should have. Um, but one thing that I do want to call out is, of course, the art by R.B. Silva is phenomenal. He did uh, the Powers of Tin half of the... Hawks Pox uh, event that, that launched all of this. Um, he draws a stellar Captain Britain Betsy. And uh, yeah, I, I, I loved the art. I love the Captain Avalon costume. Of course, I love Jamie wearing the sinister cape. Um, and then from a story perspective, I really liked the scene where Gambit... Uh, explodes the hilt to the sword of might and forces Brian uh, to accept that power that he had shunned for uh, the entire issue thus far. I don't know. I thought that was a really clever use 
of uh, Gambit there. There's not a lot of clever things left about Gambit at this point, and that that really landed for me. Um, so yeah, I don't have a whole, whole lot to say about this particular issue other than I may have wound up enjoying it more than I thought after listening to you sell me on it. Really? Oh my God, this is like a first in our friendship. I'm so excited right now. I'm like crying. It's usually me selling you on things. I know, it it really is. Um, The only last thing I want to point out is that I've spoken to a lot of uh, Betsy fans and they don't like how Betsy has been portrayed recently as Captain Britain. And... Look, I mean, obviously the X fandom is wide and there's varying opinions, but I'm just talking about the, the, the few people I've spoken to. I want to say I actually do like how Betsy has been portrayed. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I wonder if the people you're talking to are fans of Ninja Psylocke Betsy or, you know, if they ha- are, have any interest in her as, you know, a less, or not, I'm not going to say less, a different kind of badass British woman, you know what I mean? Like, I because I was a fan of British Betsy before I was a fan of Ninja Betsy. So having her return to, uh, you know, her roots, her proper body, her non-racist form, and uh, having her actually interact with her family and have her be involved in that Captain Britain Otherworld side of things uh, makes me really happy because that's the kind of stuff that we weren't getting with her as Ninja Psylocke. And, you know, it would have been less impactful with her as, you know, the thong warrior, but uh, I'm really appreciating it. And I, I really don't, my, my friend Gary, uh, shout out to Gary, he's the biggest Psylocke fan I know, and he's really into it. So, you know, I, I'm just curious, you know, I, I would be curious to know which Psylocke fans you're speaking with about this. Yeah, yeah. And Psylocke fans and Betsy fans and Captain Britain fans all alike, why don't you email us at generationsofx at gmail.com your opinions on Captain Britain and Betsy's recent turn in her history. Okay, and with that, let's go ahead and move on to the next chapter of the Ten of Swords crossover. Uh, that would be the 10th chapter of the Ten of Swords crossover in Adjectiveless X-Men. It is written by the head of X himself, Jonathan Hickman, with amazing art by Mahmoud Asrar. So our issue X-Men opens- Red, I'm sorry to interrupt you. He did X-Men Red and he, he was phenomenal in it. Our issue opens in the Healing Gardens of Krakoa, where Banshee is looking kind of annoyed that no one's paying attention to him because they're all too busy with Apocalypse, who is clearly in an immense amount of pain thanks to the injuries he received in the Otherworld battle a few issues ago. Doctors Reyes and McCoy, alongside Healer, are struggling to treat him, though, because he won't hold still. So Polaris and later Magneto use their powers to restrain him while Hope mimics Healer and the two of them get to work healing. It's clear that Apocalypse at least feels somewhat better right away as he immediately begins a quarter-issue-long diatribe that flashes us back to the days of Okara, the One Land. We get a couple pages of extended fight scenes between the enemies from the Dark World and the Okarans before 100 of Okara's greatest champions seemingly turn the tide of the battle, at which point we jump to something akin to an ancient Okaran Quiet Council that includes Apocalypse, his son, the Four Horsemen, and Genesis the love interest in Baby Mama who shares the code name with both Apocalypse's second son, Tyler, and his young clone, Evan. Seems like that's just a really popular name in an Apocalypse orbit. Anyway, 
Peace has come to the land, and this council is deciding the fate of their enemies when out of nowhere, a gold box being held by the defeated enemy begins talking and asks to be opened. <gasps> a creepy gold mask then jumps out and attaches itself to the idiot who listened to it and opened the box. While his new body is rapidly deteriorating, the mask tells us that it's actually a world away what would like to make these strong mutants of great quality and offer. Now, this whole issue has been pretty damn confusing, but here's where I got really confused. The mask says they cannot just offer up whatever is being offered. The Okarans must earn it. And with that, the body of the mask wearer seems to wither away to dust, and two of the enemy hordes step forward to introduce themselves as if there's about to be a big fight. But Genesis quickly takes care of them and tries to steer the conversation back to the mysterious offer, which we learn absolutely nothing further about in this issue. As the next time we see Genesis, she and the horsemen are saying farewell to Apocalypse as they head off for a mission he is not strong enough for. Now, I'm assuming this is the final farewell before they are lost to Apocalypse for thousands of years until the start of this crossover, but I really don't know for sure. Uh, somewhere in this group of confusing scenes, we do get a mention of Genesis's sister, Iska the Unbeaten, which means nothing to us now, but I'm sure will be of some importance later on. Who really knows? <laughs> From there, we're back on Krakoa in the present day where Apocalypse is fully healed and ready to get his damn sword, a.k.a. the Scarab, and join the rest of the champions on the corpse of Rockslide. Oh. And because they'll seemingly trust anyone at this point, the X-Men appear to send Apocalypse and Gorgon, two villains, often in a way mission by themselves, to the Temple of the Horsemen in Western Egypt. Inside, Apocalypse smashes his way to the various pieces of the sword, and the issue ends with him walking out with his sword fully assembled. And, uh, yeah, a lot happened there, uh, and a lot of it was pretty confusing. Tell me, Dayspring, was there something important I missed, or did you have a bit of a tough time following this one as well? Okay, okay. First of all, I just want to say the way you recapped that issue um, made it sound a lot more interesting for me than when I actually read it. So... Uh, I'm going to give you props on that. Look at that. That's exactly what your Excalibur recap did for me. I know. No, well, we had we had very different opinions going into this uh, recording today. I really liked Excalibur and did not like X-Men, but the way you, and vice versa for you, but the way you described X-Men right now, it's like, oh yeah, that, that sounded a lot better than I actually did. Uh, there are two things um, that I, I feel about this issue, and this is what I took away after I read it. One, Fuck them for putting Banshee on the recap page. And I was going into it thinking he was going to have a bigger role. And he did it. He just literally laid there and then turned around. Even it, you, it's, it's so frustrating this how they've treated Banshee. Because even though he's in this crossover, even though he's doing big things, he's not talking. These big things are happening off panel. And even when they show him as a character on the recap page, it's... he. It, he does nothing. I thought he, he was going to do something significant. At least have something to like the, the level that Hope did. Anyways, so that was my feels. And second, um, we do have that conversation with Apocalypse's wife, but where she says something like, you know, you had to prepare the world for survival of the fittest. And I, I, I like that level of death to Apocalypse's character. That kind of bridges the gap between the magician, as you call him, the magician, Excalibur, you know, character that we see and the Darwinist that we, we know traditionally. So those were the two big takeaways for me. I'm going to be honest with you. I can give a flying fuck about what's going on with this secret, you know, first generation mutant history. I don't care. I'm here. It, it, it took this issue for me to 
to finally realize this is a really deep filler issue. Not the Storm issue, not the Wolverine issue. Those didn't feel like fillers. This felt filler to me. But this is Hickman. This is the head of X. Don't you think that this should be the least fillery issue of them all? Well, I think he's doing the most world building. That's what he's doing. He's doing the most world building. And by the way- It's exhausting. It's exhausting. I don't think it's bad world building, but- (laughs) It's, but it's exhausting. It, it's it's you're getting too much data on something, and you're like, oh, like I just want to see these. I just want to see my X fan, like my X Men fight with swords. That's it. Right, and we're getting all of this data without being told what it means. Like, what is this gold box? What is this mask? Yeah. Who is Iska the Unbeaten? Where the hell did Genesis come from? Like, what? what? Like, we don't know anything about any of these people. And it's so hard to care when we're 10 parts into this crossover and they've made multiple appearances by different writers across different books. And no one has been able to write them in a way that leaves an impression. I I feel, yeah, no. And I get you. And I think Though to to Hickman's credit, looking at this thematically in the in the bigger picture, he's trying to humanize Apocalypse for us. He's trying to give us a very rich character history, and I it's not that I don't appreciate that. I just don't care. Someone I, has to appreciate Apocalypse's single tear on page seventeen. <laughs> Wait, I have to look at that. I look. I wanna I I wanna be happy about this issue. I just I didn't like it. It wasn't. I just didn't get it. And look, he has a single man tear coming down his cheek. A single man tear. Now, is that over Genesis or is that over Iska the Unbeaten? I I have no idea. I right. have. Who could know? Who could Who know could what know. is happening here? But There's... here's the thing. Like, I hope, and I'm sorry to cut you off. I really do hope, though, this does pay off. And I don't mean that in a, in a, like a, in, in a vapid sort of way. I just mean that, like, I hope these characters and this narrative will have a significant impact other than just this one standalone issue where Apocalypse gets his sword and joins the others on Rockslide's corpse. I, I can't imagine that we would build up a character uh, like Genesis and introduce a mysterious sister and have it not go somewhere. Whether it goes anywhere once Hickman is no longer head of X, we'll see. But I can't... If there's one thing I know about Jonathan Hickman is that he usually doesn't seed things without a purpose. Yeah, and this is where I agree with you. This is where I think maybe you have to have a leap of faith as an X fan. I don't have a leap of faith. I, you know, I've been burned so many times. Writers come in with great ideas and then they're gone. I, we know he's head of X, but, you know, how long does that last? How long is his contract for, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But yeah, I mean, overall, mm, I'm sorry, uh, listener, you can't see me. Thumbs down. I, I didn't like this issue. I felt it was too laborious. I think it's, I think it was important to see Apocalypse as a fully fleshed out character, his history and the writing was good. But in terms of the overall narrative, I didn't care for it. Right. I didn't either. And it's ridiculous how much happened without me caring about any of it. And you know, that recap that I, that I just did, that was, speaking of, speaking of laborious, <laughs> reading this back and trying to analyze page by page, panel by panel, what is happening is laborious. Like, it, th- this comic, there wasn't a whole lot to enjoy about it. You know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of fun in there. Like, there were fight scenes, but they weren't good fight scenes. There were, 
you know, there's a lot of character dialogue, but it was all kind of foreshadowy, mysterious crap that only posed more questions than it answered, which for a middle chapter of a crossover, I understand that's going to happen. But for something that's coming from the head of X himself, uh, I just really expected more. I wanted to see some like X-Men heads rolling. Yeah. I will say the art is incredible, but that, you know what you're, you know what you're getting uh, when you have Mahmoud Asrar uh, on, on the art. Um, I love, I, I will say it's an inconsistency from the prior issue um, that Polaris is in her new X-Factor costume here, but I love that costume. I love that she's in it and he renders her beautifully. Um, you want to jump into Juggernaut? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, also out this week, we have the second issue of the five-issue Juggernaut Limited series. Uh, it's written by Fabian Nicieza with art by the always reliable Ron Garney. Um, we're not going to get too, too into this um, just because, you know, we'll, we'll save that for a comprehensive look at the end. I think that's a better way to approach these miniseries. Yep. Um, but I'm loving this. I am a big fan of of Kane Marco, the hero. He that is the only positive thing to have come out of the Chuck Austin run of Uncanny X Men. You mean um, when he was BFFs with Sammy the Fish Boy? Sammy the Fish Boy, R.I.P. Sammy. That was fucked up. Wait, I'm sorry. Is he R.I.P.? Is he? Mm, is he? I don't know. He could very well be on Krakoa. He's on the list with Madeline Pryor for Resurrections. <laughs> Way harsh, Ty. Uh, anyway, so this series is essentially um, what happens to Juggernaut after Magic tosses him in limbo at the end of the Matthew Rosenberg volume of Uncanny X-Men. And it's just months of him walking through, dragging his uh, Juggernaut costume behind him. So I, this was not on my radar until you recommended it for me. And I picked up the first issue and I started reading it and I saw that Eliana dropped in there and he was in limbo and he had to drag his costume. And I'll, I'll tell you the scene that really got me was when you saw how frail his normal human form was and then carrying that juggernaut armor, you know, behind him. And I, I really appreciate those stories that humanize our villains, much like they tried to with Apocalypse in, in the last issue we were talking about. But I think this one was done in a very captivating way because we got a, like, a really deep look at what makes Kane tick. And for the longest time, Kane is like, ooh, smash, I'm going to break things. And that's the total opposite. We actually have a very thoughtful, introspective villain who isn't the villain of his story. I, I think that's what needs to be said here. He's not the villain of his story. Right. This series is is very much about making him, taking him away from, from being a villain um, and doing so in a very convincing fashion. Of course, we still have, you know, three issues left. Any Anything could happen. But um, the main question at this point is how, if not the gem of Sidorak, how is Juggernaut powered again? We, we don't know. Um, I assume we're going to find out here. Um, but he's, you know, stepping back into that, that mentor role. He has um, a new mentee here, not, not Sammy the Fish Boy. Um, and that relationship is, is written really well. And uh, she gets him involved in some shenanigans with the Hulk that he's not quite uh, prepared for. Um, I don't know. It's just, a, like you said, it's a very humanizing look at the Juggernaut. And I 
am really excited to to see where this goes because like i said i i love hero juggernaut and i think the best scene in this whole book so far the one with him and xavier actually getting along for a change it's just a refreshing i know nothing in comics ever really changes but this is a refreshing change of pace for a character who's usually doing nothing but destroying things. Yeah. And I think D cell, that's the name of his new mentor. I couldn't think of it. Thank you. It's D cell. And what I loved about D cell was that they are emblematic of the new generation of superheroes. I don't believe she's a mutant. I think she specifically says I'm not a mutant, right? She does say she's not a mutant. Correct. But you know, I think we get the, we got the projection of Xavier in Kane's head where he's here like, sorry, you're not coming to Krakoa because Krakoa is just for mutants. And you see him really caring for her and staying at the hospital bed with her and, and really forming that rapport. So I'm all for it. I think it's been a great series. Fabian Nicieza is for me, one of, one of Marvel's greatest writers, especially from the nineties. I have no qualms with anything he's done. It's been a fantastic ride for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Shockingly, I'm sorry to cut you off, but shockingly, the recommendation came from you. And I hate everything you like. So I mean, every now and then a a broken clock is 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 right twice a day. Well, mm, that's once today. So let's see. (laughs) Let's see how the rest of the day goes. But um, thank you for recommending that. And you know, for other listeners like me who don't necessarily, Juggernaut wasn't on the radar, even though, even though they're diehard X-Men fans, it's a great book. Check it out. I think unanimously, I haven't seen anyone say something negative about this book. Yeah, no, I, I don't see how you could thus far. Well, so I guess that's our recap for this week. Yeah, um, you know, next week, I think we have one major, It's it's one of the blue highlighted ones in the back of of the crossover so you know it's going to be a big one uh x of swords stasis number one. Oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh flickman what's happening rachel summers has sent our future consciousnesses back in time so that we can recap and review this future week's issue for you take it away day spring Yes, thank you, Rachel Summers. Because of you, we're going to be tackling on issue one of Ten of Swords Stasis, which is chapter 11 of our crossover. And folks, we are now dead in the center of this crossover. We are at halfway point right now. And uh, shit's about to get real. So this issue is written by Jonathan Hickman and Tini Howard. The art is by Pepe Loraz and Mahmoud Asar. Colorist is Mate Gracia. And folks, this issue is, how would you describe it, Flinkman? Uh, long and a little confusing. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely really confusing. And I'm going to say my thoughts towards the end, because if not, I can ramble quite a bit. But this is very much is. You isn't... know. Me? What? what are you talking about? I mean, you too. You too. You're usually so brief with your thoughts and opinions. <laughs> I'm not as brief. and it, Well, you're not brief, but you're very concise with your thoughts. I feel like I'm all I get to the place. point. You get to the point. I like to ramble. I like to hear myself talk. Well, how about you go ahead and get to that point then? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, this is an interlude issue. And that's what I've seen a lot of our, you know, a lot of the reviewers out there say. So um, let's just dive into it. We begin with a quote from Saturnine, and I love this quote. She says, I pull their strings and they dance. The question is, when I cut their strings, will they still? 
And I just think that's a really good look at Saturnine and her overarching nefarious plans. But the actual issue starts off with an emissary from Saturnine, and she's traveling to multiple worlds and inviting these governments to participate in a parliament. We then cut to Saturnine, and she's holding court, and she, and she has this beautiful crystal gavel and as an auctioneer i'm so incredibly jealous i want this crystal gavel and there are representatives from all over of the world and king jamie is there and blinkman what is he wearing sinister's cape he looks i mean i just gotta tell you jamie is rocking rocking it he looks great with the cape no shirt i would be like hello zaddy um but they're 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 voting on open borders, like an open borders policy between the providences. There's a lot of talk about recent politics, conquests, and, and, it, and it all culminates with pestilence and famine, saying 10 of their hungriest fighters wield our 10 thirstiest blades. And with Avalon's champions, which are the Krakoan champions that Flinkman had to <laughs> remind me, were on their way. So back in Krakoa, Gorgon and Apocalypse are talking it up and Gorgon is like, yawn, I'm over rituals. It's all about blood and sword. But you know what? This little tournament has me intrigued because both my blades are being mentioned. And then Apocalypse addresses the sword bearers, asking if they said goodbye to their loved ones and, you know, kind of recapping what we already know, which is if you die in another world, that's it. You are dead. You will come back as an amalgamation of all other possibilities of who you are. It won't be you. You are going to be real dead, not pretend dead. Like the dead of the mutant corpse you are standing on right now. R.I.P. Rockslide. Mm, Rockslide. Um, so Cable gets a little angsty about it because he's like, what, 16, 17? And he's here like, come on, bro. Give us a better pep talk. So then Apocalypse transports our champions to Otherworld and our champions, just so we can recap who we have here. It's Apocalypse himself, Gorgon, Kid Cable, Storm, Wolverine, Doug Ramsey, Magic, Captain Britain, and Captain Avalon, right? Did I get everyone? You got it. Okay. So then back to Araco, um, we start getting the story of their champions and we get a data page of their own prophecies and the prophecies are similar to the ones that Polaris spewed out at the beginning of this crossover. So we see Summoner and Apocalypse's children who shockingly have just done an entire human sacrifice ritual. It's not, they're not human. It's the people of Del Dai Lore and they are at the last watchtower of the Fallen Kingdom of Drydor in Otherworld and they've just slaughtered these people. And presumably it's because now they have their own prophecies and they need to go get their blades. So to recap, like the couple pages we have, they're very long and they're very data heavy, but what you have to take away from it is that Summoner and the and Apocalypse's children um, spend the next couple pages getting Redroot, Pog or Pog, Bay, White Sword, and Iska. Did I get those names correctly? I think you did. I, I, I don't know. Is it Bay or Bai? I, I don't know how you would pronounce that, but we have Redroot, Pog or Pog, Bay, B-E-I, White Sword, and Iska. And those are our 10 champions for Rocco. It's War, it's Summoner, it's Solemn, it's White Sword of the Ivory Spire, it's Red Root, the Forest, it's Death, it's Iska, the Unbeaten, Annihilation, 
Bay the Blood Moon and Pog U Pog, who's an internet star already. Everyone, everyone loves him. Everyone's blowing up talking about him. So that's sort of where we're at at the half point. That's where I'll pick it up as our Krakoan sword bearers arrive to the Starlight Citadel with a tingle, confused as to whether or not they're on friendly ground. The Braddock twins are of absolutely no help as they basically shrug it off like, don't ask us, y'all. Saturnine then arrives and clears up any lingering confusion by making it known that she doesn't give two Fs about any of them, even if she did have chambers prepared for all of them. Once in their separate rooms, our heroes find tarot cards that indicate they each have a different part to play. Betsy, the Nine of Swords, Doug, the Two of Cups, Brian, the Knight of Pentacles, Magic, the Page of Wands, Cable, the Fool, Wolverine, Strength, Storm, Death, Apocalypse, the Lovers, and Gorgon. Well, Gorgon's card was unrevealed, which mm, definitely doesn't foreshadow good things for the character voted most likely to die in this crossover by listeners like you. Also, a few things worth mentioning about these cards. Betsy's indicates that she could meet a very stabby and unpleasant end. Doug suggests he might find himself a beefcake boyfriend in Otherworld. And Death, <laughs> Storm's card, shares its name with the Horseman of Apocalypse, and it actually depicts her on horseback here as well. Hmm. Speaking of Apocalypse, he's like totally over this game after seeing his card and goes to confront Saturnine, who is pissed that he crumpled up the vintage tarot card she bought on Otherworld Etsy. She lets Apocalypse know that, hey, she's grateful for his assistance in defeating Morgan Le Fay back in the first arc of Excalibur when we understood even less about what was happening with all this magic stuff than we do now. But he's been acting like a real jerk ever since then. This whole conversation was essentially just several pages of two characters walking and talking, but it's amazingly rendered by Pepe Larraz, who thoughtfully laid it out as an elevator scene, which breaks up the somewhat boring exposition. It also serves as a really lovely transition to Saturnine's next important meeting, which turns out to be with Amenth, aka Annihilation, aka Genesis, aka Apocalypse's long lost love, as foreshadowed by his tarot card. The book ends there, and we are reminded that we are literally only halfway through this crossover and that we have 11 books coming our way over the next four weeks. Aww. Holy shit, we're gonna be busy. Um, all right, so that's a recap for this issue. I want to know what you thought of it. Um, well, you know, as usual, I've, I, I'm a fan of the Marvel UK Captain Britain stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely happy to see uh, familiar faces like Roma, Merlin, Mad Jim Jaspers, and the Fury. Um, all people and places um, on this other world council have been mentioned uh, in the data dump pages throughout this crossover. And we haven't really discussed those because they're just so damn cumbersome. But... Uh, it was nice to see it all sort of come together here, um, even if it is still very confusing. Um, speaking of confusing, uh, the mask we were confused about earlier in the episode is officially, it's, it's Amenth, or rather the Golden Helm of Amenth, who is also called Annihilation, who is also then revealed to be Genesis, Apocalypse's wife. And it's kind of just like, Huh? Oh boy. Yeah. Huh? It's, like, it, it, it makes sense when I stop and I gather my thoughts for like something like this, but you know, I, I and I, I, I guess I can follow that. That is, 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 it's one character for, for this tournament, but you know, in a crossover with so many new characters and new locations and such complicated lore overall, it feels like kind of a lot to have to deal with, 
keeping up with who's who and what's what. Um, and that to me is kind of, you know, emblematic of the problem I have with this crossover in general. It's just kind of like on first read, you're so overwhelmed with data and characters that it like, it almost makes you anxious. You, you know what I mean? Like the yeah. more you try to follow, the more you're unable to. Well, the thing, when I first read, I, I agree with everything you said, like literally everything you said is what, what I feel. And when I first read it, I was just like, oh my God, like there's so much information being thrown at me. I like, it's overwhelming. But when I started rereading it again for this issue, I kind of like took my head, you know, in, I put my head in the game, excuse me. Yeah. I put my head in the game. I wanted to really understand what Hickman and Howard were trying to do here. And here's the thing about this issue that I think why it's a turnoff and why it makes it unique and, and different. It's not, it's defined the superhero genre. It's defined what we've known about the X-Men for a while now. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Lord of the Rings and Arthurian legend. So I love that, but I don't know if I necessarily love that translated into the X-Men. And I think that's what we're supposed to approach this, you know, crossover as it's supposed to be high fantasy. It, it's literary fantasy in, in the most quintessential way possible. It's, it's token meets Ursula Kayla Quinn. It's sprinkled with a little Dan, Samuel Delaney. It's, it's really interesting and in what they're what they're doing there and it's fine it's it's not bad i think if it wasn't the x men i would enjoy this crossover or this story rather much more but the fact that it is the x men it gets me a little like ah uh, like you know does that well, make sense i mean it it definitely makes sense um but see i kind of you know i'm a big fan of the claremont allen davis excalibur and that mm-hmm you know, a lot of this was the basis of um, the early issues of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, it, for me, this has always kind of been an X-Men thing. Like they have occupied really? this corner of the universe off and on, um, you know, over and I don't years, mean that, usually and I'm sorry. only with Claremont. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I don't mean that they haven't tackled this corner of the universe before. I just, I think the approach to the crossover just being very high fantasy for me. Because, I mean, I haven't read, I haven't reread Excalibur since I was probably like, I got like 14 or 13. And, okay, and well, you really got, should. Well, well I'll It'll, put that on my list. It's a lot better as an adult. I'll, I'll well, tell that, you that. The cover of Rachel Summers and Captain Britain, that's iconic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I just, the way I've, I'm seeing this right now, again, divorced from those Excalibur days, it just feels very high fantasy. And, and I appreciate that. I really do appreciate the, the world building. And as you've said, it, it stems from that original run. So, yeah, I mean, I like this issue a lot more on the second read. I didn't like it the first one. I liked it better the second one. I've been having a hard time, like, just keeping up with which horseman is which. So, like, now having yeah, to keep up with which horseman is which. Yeah. I'm now going to have to know who's who of these Arakoan sword bearers. And, like, okay, I've got Summoner because he's been around since the early days of the Hickman reboot. Fine. Uh, we've got Solemn, the goth hottie. I'll remember <laughs> him. Um, and I'll probably remember Pog or Pog because Pog or Pod's Pog and Er Pog's Pog, but Pog's Er Pog Pog, then Er Pog's Pog. Am I right? I mean, that's why he's an internet icon already because 
it just is so ridiculous. I do have a friend who's really into tarot cards and I asked her about some of the, the cards we saw in this issue. I know they explain it in the data page at the end of the issue, but she gave me some more information about these uh, cards. And I thought the more like I read about these cards, I was like, wow, this is being very transparent about the characters. And do, can I go through them? Do you want to go through them together? And we can like speculate a little bit. The only, I, the only one that I really want to speculate about is Doug's. Well, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Well, let, let's get to Betsy first because the Nine of Swords is a card that's all about doubt and pain. And basically those swords are what hangs over a person and their fears. And it's a very inward read. I feel that it was already in the data page, but I think it's really interesting because of the issue before we get to see Betsy really tackle that insecurity about the mantle of Captain Britain, which I didn't even, again, I I've been very clear about my feels for the first half of Excalibur. I thought it was unreadable. I really couldn't really get my head around it, but I, I like that level of detail to Betsy's personality. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, she's been questioning whether or not she's worthy of the mantle basically this whole run. So in that context, that that card is not surprising at all. Okay, now Doug Ramsey. Yeah, his is kind of suggestive and hot if we're being perfectly honest. It's but like is that this big beefy dude? Isn't it Grogan? Isn't it? I couldn't tell. Wait, but why would I thought it was because he throws away the card too. No, 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 because Wait, he got a completely separate card. I thought they both and... got the same card. Wait, no, because if you look... No, 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 because if you look at the back in tarot, tar as in tarot of the, the, the classic Hellions team, you know, oh. she's been turning these same cards across a couple of, of strange readings in these data dump pages. And no, hit, hidden. If you look, Nine of Swords, that, that's Betsy, Two of Cups... That's Doug. And then next we, we see Gorgon and it says hidden. So no, they did, hidden. Not, share, oh, did not share the blah, blah. card with Doug. I thought he did because that kind of looks like his silhouette. I mean, look at it. It you know? looks like Warpath to me. It looks like oh, Warpath. You know, is that... Now that I'm looking... Is, that war, is it Warpath? I don't know. It's hot is what it is. I Again, I totally misread this panel on this page. It looked like to me... It was both of them. And that makes me kind of sad now. I, but, you know, whatever. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But it looked, to me, I got, I got Warpath from it. Well, I... it could be. So my friend was telling me the card is all about sexual tension and attraction. But it's also about a pair of two lovers coming together. And their relationship could be so inward and so intense that it could cause disharmony to the rest of the world. So I wonder if it's someone from Otherworld, you know, Doug kind of has like a thing with, and then boom, you know. Now I'm wondering if it's Gorgon. You, well, I, I think it, we've switched places now. I don't. It looks like Gorgon. I'm telling you. That's why it, I got confused. I mean, because of the long hair and everything. But look, I, I don't know. And that's, I, I mean, again, I agree that he has a hidden card. You're absolutely 1000% right on that. I just read it differently because it was in between both of them. Let's see. I'm, I'm curious. I think Doug needs some major uh, story time. So give him something to do. For Captain Avalon, the Knight of Pentacles, it represents work, effort, and goals. And it also shows the beholder that they have a natural, that they are a natural planner and leader but it can also be emblematic of a boring, mundane life and a, a very moderate approach to life, which I, I think, think it's, 
I think it's interesting that you say that it's this person is a is a planner because in the again in tarot's reading actual tarot the character Mm -hmm. her reading at the back of the book it specifically says this man has no master plan wow interesting is it i i know if they're upside down the the cards come upside down it has obviously the other meaning but i think he's he's facing upright correct yeah definitely there's no so then for magic, uh, the page of wands means that this is someone who is inclined to give everything a go and that they embrace opportunity. And the reason why their sword is planted deep into the earth, it suggests that they're not going anywhere, that they have the courage of their convictions. But funny enough, it also means that a new spiritual path may be calling them, like the actual oh. card itself. So I think that was kind of magic-y. And then the fool, I feel like what I was told about the fool kind of is reminiscent of what is said in the data page. It's not necessarily a literal fool. It's just someone who's at the beginning of their journey, who has an open heart, who is willing to take a leap. But the card is all about enticing the beholder to have an open and curious mind to the story unfolding, you know, above them. Wolverine, I thought was the interesting one because the card is supposed to represent strength, courage, and compassion. And usually it's someone riding a chariot. And in this case, Summoner is riding Wolverine. But the chariot represents outward strength and will, and it also represents inner strength and the human spirit and its ability to overcome anything. So I took that as like very Gulliver's Travel, which is the indomitable human spirit. You can't really kill it off. And um, apparently it, it says... My, my friend was telling me that this card is all about governing with your own strength and not persecuting others. Like you have the power to see something through to the end, which I thought was great. Um, I think Storm is pretty in your face. I, I was curious about her reaction because she kind of like gasped. Maybe, I don't know. Did I read that wrong when I saw her gasp at the death card? No, she does. Yeah, I think that's definitely supposed to be a gasp. But I feel like that has been already like kind of like a cliche in our cultural lexicon, which is you get the death card. You already know it doesn't mean literal death. It just means a change. Does that make sense? I mean, I took it a little more literal than that as a death card with Storm on horseback nestled next to a panel (laughs) of apocalypse. I got horsemen, death, the horsemen of apocalypse. Oh, so you think she may become, well, th- that, there you go. She may become, you know, maybe she's no longer going to be just, you know, on the council. She's going to be now uh, the death, your, the see, horseman of death. Be the first. Let's see. And then Apocalypse Lover. I mean, there wasn't too much to say about this. The only thing that I found really curious that my friend was saying was that the card is about being who you want to be in this lifetime. What kind of honesty are you going to give the other person you are? you are with and it usually represents unifying dual forces so i wonder if somehow apocalypse and his amorous feelings towards genesis what's what what are the names again for this character (laughs) golden helm of amenth is the map so it's been referred to as amenth Mm -hmm. also called annihilation um and revealed to be genesis yes who is apocalypse's wife lover uh baby mama Oh, geez. It's so much. So anyways, I, I just thought that was curious. I think a lot of it is already spelled out for us in that data page. I just, my friend is into tarot card reading. So I was like, can you just give me a couple of points on these? Yeah, really the only other thing that I, that I had is uh, Gorgon is clearly going to die. He is clearly going to die. Um, 
nobody knows who he is to begin with. Like you didn't know who he was. I didn't I know who even he was. I couldn't pronounce his name right. I'm like, what was that, Grogon? I forgot what I was saying. It's all right. It's all right. But, um, you know, he's the only character who didn't get an issue of buildup before being thrust directly into, into this tournament. And again, you know, his card wasn't revealed to us, the reader, and it wasn't revealed uh, to Tarot the Hellion. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Who do you not want to die? Like, who's the one character if they kill here, you're going to be like, no. Um, I don't know if there's anybody here that would get me super riled up. I, I think I think Betsy has uh, the most going for her, the most new uh, and interesting stories to be told coming out of this. So I definitely would not be happy to see Captain Britain die, but um, you know, magic, storm, cipher, I would I would not be too happy about any of those. Um we know old man be. cable is back out there somewhere. So, you know, cable could very well die in this as well, only to be replaced by the one true cable. I I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm <sighs> Okay, so I love Kid Cable. I, I don't know if it's just like I'm missing Nate Gray so much and I kind of like, and we've talked about the Summers family uh, ad nauseum, but I don't mind having Kid Cable around. Look, you know, Betsy, Storm, Wolverine, Apocalypse. I I could live without those. You know, if something happens with those characters, I'd, ha- I, I, I'd feel confident enough that they'd bring them back in some way, shape or form, you know, years from now. Well, of course. But for me, it's, Doug Ramsey. I that's the one character I do not want to die. I don't want Cypher to die. I want him to live. I loved him with Warlock as a sword. Like I'm digging him. I'm even looking up. I'm talking to people about like how can I create a great Doug Ramsey cosplay. Like that's how much I don't want him to die now. I mean, someone's got to love Doug. Look, I have nothing. <laughs> I have nothing against Doug. Um, obviously, you know, I went on a staunch defense of Doug. Um, and how badass he is just a few weeks ago. So obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't want him to die, but I don't think, it, uh, number one, I don't think he's going to. And number two, it wouldn't, it really wouldn't bother me too terribly much. But yeah, no, next week we have X-Men number 14 and Marauders number 14 before we dive right back into three issues a week for the following three weeks. So we are gonna be going uh, pretty hot and heavy with this crossover. It's gonna be firing on all cylinders from here on out. My interest has waned here and there so far during this opening half of the crossover, but overall, I'm still pretty into it. I'm still excited to see where it's gonna go. uh, And I hope that there are some legitimate surprises ahead. Okay, yeah, yeah. I. You know, we're at the halfway point. It's an ambitious crossover. I mean, it's 22 chapters. I think the pandemic has served them well. They were able to get everything out on time. I'm surprised at the quality that we're being given. You know, we can have our feels about it, but it's good quality. I can't sit here and be like, oh, they're being inconsistent or anything, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Like, it's a tight story, like, from an editorial perspective. That being said, though, I'm ready to see some fighting. But Yeah, it's time for for more to happen. There's been, I, it's been 11 issues of build up to this point and it's time for the tournament to begin for sure. Yeah, so it's been foreshadowed since Powers of 10 with Myra walking through the carnival and you know, here we are at the end game of, of the story thread. 
Yeah, I'm definitely excited to see where we're going to go next. And I, I do agree. I hope it, it's a little more action-packed. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, that's it. We're being ripped out of these mechanical bodies and being sent back to our present by Rachel Summers. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Real pleasant. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the present, Flinkman and Dayspring continue their conversation and wrapping this episode. I need a, a nap after I this need, week. I need a nap from you. <laughs> like, jeez. Wow. That is really, really harsh. I'm, I'm really offended. That's really harsh, Ty. And with that, uh, that's the end. That's it. Do the this outro. Is, Come on. This is the uncanny Dayspring. And the adjectiveless Flinkman. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at generationsofx at gmail.com. Or if you're not already, give us a follow on Instagram at generationsofx. <laughs>